Welcome to the Inside Elections Podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. In this episode, we'll take a look at the slate of important upcoming primaries in California, including an open U.S. Senate seat and more than a dozen interesting House races. And we'll do all that with the help of special guest Melanie Mason of Politico, who is on the ground covering these races in the Golden State. Buckle up. Hello, I'm Jacob Rubashkin, Deputy Editor of Inside Elections. We're the go-to place for nonpartisan political analysis for more than 40 years. And I just got back from New York's third district, which is on Long Island and also includes a little bit of Queens. And I'm Nathan Gonzalez, editor and publisher of Inside Elections, and I've spent the last few days in Northeast D.C., uh, which still does not have congressional representation on Capitol Hill. And my past few days have not been uh, more uh, have not been more interesting than yours, Jacob, on the ground with the special election going on in the third district. What was what was it like to be there? Well, first, I'm, I'm surprised they haven't fixed that uh, representation issue in the in the couple of days since I've been gone. But maybe maybe they'll get to it this week. You know, New York's third district also does not have a congressional representative right now, uh, so that's something that it shares in common with the District of Columbia. Uh, but uh, in under two weeks the uh, residents of the 3rd District of New York will go to the polls to select a replacement for former Congressman George Santos. We all remember him. Uh, He's really old news in this district. Did not hear anything about Santos while I was up there, which I thought was quite interesting given how omnipresent he was for the first year of of this Congress. Uh, You know, it, it was interesting being up in the district you know, it is a little sleepier than than I was anticipating, to be totally honest. You know, I think in, in recent years, we've become accustomed to a kind of circus-like atmosphere that follows around these competitive special elections. You know, uh, thinking about uh, races in uh, Georgia's 6th Congressional District and the Montana special election. And, um, you know, a lot of the Trump era special election races really were hotbeds of, of support uh, and activity among both parties, and and this this district is is just not uh, necessarily demonstrating that same kind of engagement in the race. You know, I think part of that is um, that uh, it's in the New York media market, and so it's just a little bit more expensive. But part of it is is just uh, I think that there's less of an appetite for politics these days, uh, and that. Um, you know, uh, has has made it a little sleepier. So, you know, we will see if things pick up over the the final couple of days here. But you know, as of recording, we're we're 13 days away from election day. Ballots uh, start going out in just a couple of days for mail in voting. Early voting starts soon. And, you know, uh, both Congressman, former Congressman Tom Swazi, who is the Democratic nominee and Nassau County legislator Mozzie Pillup, um, you know, they're both campaigning, but it seems to be more of a weekend campaign uh, where they hold all their big events and then much quieter during the weekday uh, when when uh, there's there's not a ton going on. Well, and I guess maybe my expectations, this this seat is important, right? There's a five Republicans have a narrow majority on Capitol Hill, even narrower now because they don't have a member sitting in this seat. And so this, whoever wins, will be sworn in presumably a couple of days after the election results are, are certified. And it also matters for the majority and all of that. So I have this impression in my mind that you, you show up at campaign headquarters and it's just bustling with, you know, people are moving and making calls and doing, but you show up at campaign headquarters and, and what did you see? Yeah. So I, I checked out uh, Swazi campaign headquarters uh, on Monday morning and it was very quiet. You know, it's it's located in an old Rite Aid uh, in, a, in a shopping center in Glen Cove, which is uh, where where Swazi is from, that's that's his base, and it, I think there was one guy inside at a folding table. Um, very much not not much going on. There was a, a canvassing event that was on the calendar. I think one or two people showed up for that. You know, I, I think that it was it was remarkably quiet. You know, I will say uh, the the Swazi campaign at least has has a public headquarters. I wasn't able to find out where Mozzie Phillips' campaign uh, was operating out of, uh, but. But the reality is, you know, it, it is uh, it is quiet. It doesn't have the hustle and bustle of 
some of these other special elections that we've seen, not just even in the Trump era, but looking back to you know Bill Owens and and the the Crits race and and Stephanie Herseth Sandlin back in South Dakota in two thousand four. Wow. There's a long history of of special elections uh, becoming these big big events that draw attention from all over the country. Uh, and it's not happening here. And I do wonder, you know, whether both parties have a lot of incentives at this point to downplay this race in the run up to it. You know, Democrats really don't want to, uh, pin all of their hopes on winning uh, this seat for them to lose in territory that by all accounts they should be winning given the the presidential lean here and 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 um, you know the voter registration advantage and all of that uh, you know if Democrats say uh, Democrats do say that New York is the is the key to winning back their majority if they can't flip a seat in a special election um, you know, in in the speaker to be's uh, backyard, you know, Hakeem Jeffries represents a district not too far from this one. You know that that reflects perhaps poorly on their chances of reclaiming the majority at least through New York. Uh, so they don't want to run the risk of building this race up to be a referendum on their ability to win back New York in the fall, only to lose it. Republicans, meanwhile, understand that they face some structural advantages in the district as well, uh, voter registration, partisan performance. Um, and, and they're also looking at a, a potential redistricting uh, down the line in New York that Democrats will have control over. So uh, I, I think that there's a bit more hesitation there, uh, knowing that uh, this district could get chopped up and made more democratic in the fall uh, when the fight for the majority will be in full swing. So both parties have incentive to downplay in the run-up of this race. Whoever wins, of course, will immediately turn around and say, this is this is the indicator, this is the clearest sign that we are on a glide path to uh, winning a 300-seat majority in the House this fall, because that's that's how it always happens. Well, stay tuned for Jacob's dispatches from the 3rd District soon, hopefully, right, Jacob? <laughs> At InsideElections.com, and we'll have election results to chew over on the next episode of this podcast. So there yeah. we go. Now, before we dive into our California stories, let's highlight some of the biggest congressional news of the last two weeks. Now, Missouri Congresswoman Cori Bush uh, is under investigation by the Department of Justice for alleged misuse of campaign funds to pay for private security, including to her now husband. Uh, Bush, who is a member of the Progressive Squad, uh, defeated longtime Missouri Congressman Lacey Clay back in the 2020 primary, uh, and she faces uh, St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell in the Democratic primary uh, for her solid Democratic seat this year should be a competitive race between the two of them, uh, and whoever wins will be the next congressperson from the district. And last week, Maryland uh, Democratic Congressman Dutch Ruppersberger announced he is not seeking re-election in the second district, which includes a tiny bit of Baltimore City, but uh, areas to the west and east of Baltimore and the north of Baltimore, all the way up to the Pennsylvania border. Uh, this is a, a Democratic district, so the fight is really going to be for uh, in the May 14th Democratic primary. I should note that he announced his retirement when we were in production for Inside Elections, the newsletter. And usually someone else announces their retirement uh, when we're taping this podcast. So stay tuned uh, to see who, who is announcing right now, uh, right now as we speak. And Ruppersberger uh, is the 41st House member not to announce they're not seeking re-election. Uh, we have we've blown past average. The average each cycle is 34. So there's some context for you. The Inside Elections podcast is sponsored by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, or GSPM. The GSPM program offers master's degree in legislative affairs and political management with in-person and online class schedules designed for the working professional. As an alum of the GSPM program, uh, I was thinking about my time, and I've talked about those flexible class schedules, um, the practicality of the degree, the professors that were actually uh, have run campaigns or run for office themselves. But I haven't talked as much about 
my fellow classmates and I uh, haven't had permission to, to name them, but some of them went into campaign world, but we also had entrepreneurs that went on to start their own businesses, even a, a U.S. attorney uh, who he went on to be U.S. attorney. And so it, it's also a mix of who you're doing the program with. I think that I benefited from. So click on the link. Get more information and see if the GSPM program uh, would be right for you. And Politico's senior political reporter, Melanie Mason. Now, this is the showdown for U.S. Senate. This will likely be the most competitive race for U.S. Senate that California has seen in decades. So that was from a recent debate for Senator Dianne Feinstein's old Senate seat. And we're excited to have Melanie Mason join us today. Melanie, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, Melanie is a form is formerly with the Los Angeles Times and currently a senior political political reporter for Politico tongue twister, based in California. Uh, but before we get too far, you have to answer the first question we put to all of our guests. Which congressional district did you grow up in? So I grew up in California 32, which is now currently represented by Congressman Brad Sherman. And I just need to say that this has caused like a deep identity crisis because I always identified as like a West LA kid represented by Henry Waxman. So I was about to like be like, and now it's Ted Lucy and blah, blah, blah. And I'm totally the West side, but no, it's the Valley. It's like a Valley person <laughs> and you know, no offense to, to the Valley, which I love and went to the high school and but like, that is so not core to my identity. And I so associate Brad Sherman is just like one of these figures of the San Fernando Valley. And I even cheated and looked at my like Pri like childhood home and then the one right before childhood home. And that's still now Brad Sherman's district. So I am like, <laughs> really, this is my entire identity has now been like thrown to question. I'm, I'm shocked by this whole exercise. Well, I'm glad we could be here. Everyone can be here for the, for this moment. Right, for my and, therapy. And, and you mentioned high school. I may have done a, a little bit of research. I Google people for a living. Um, and you went to Harvard Westlake. Is that right? I did. I did. And and it, uh, that appears to be a, a major league baseball factory. I think Max Fried and Lucas Giolito, uh, Jack Flaherty. And then I saw was Ashton Kutcher, a football coach at Harvard Westlake. Like this is, this is crazy. He, he, this, all of this is true. And it's like, so on the nose as like an LA private school, like, you know, both the like grab bag of like super elite athletics and the MLB stuff is, is real. Like it really is kind of a factory now for like uh, professional baseball players. The Ashton Kutcher thing, I don't even think his kids went to Harvard West. Like it, the whole <laughs> thing was very, it happened after I graduated. I just remember watching at the time being like, this is extremely odd. But yes, there's also, I mean, there are also a couple of, um, uh, Eric Garcetti, former mayor of LA, is a Harvard Westlake grad, actually technically Harvard when it was an all boys school. Um, Nick Melvoin, who's a current congressional candidate, who I am like covering his race running for Adam Schiff's seat, was a year behind me at Harvard Westlake. So it is <laughs> one of those schools where you start to like, the alum are out there. We're, we're everywhere. Yeah, and I know uh, quite quite a few journalists out of there as well, yourself included, Katie Turr, Jacob Soberoff. It's a pretty pretty prominent place. We'll keep it in California. Let's talk about the Senate race. So we've got three main Democrats running for this seat, right? Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, Barbara Lee, three members of Congress. And then you've got one Republican who gets the, the majority of the attention from, from that party. Steve Garvey, the former Dodger star, also played for the Padres. Let's just jump right in. In your mind, uh, are the Democrats jockeying for two spots in, in the top two of, of this top two primary? Or or is has the dynamic kind of become Democrats are jockeying for one spot and Steve Garvey as, as the most prominent Republican is uh, in a good position to secure that that second place in in the general election. I think if you had asked me in the fall, I would have said this is going to be a top two race. And Steve Garvey didn't hop even hop into the race until the fall, which just kind of speaks to where the California Republican Party is, as they were struggling so much to even find a candidate who would have the name ID to even be a viable statewide candidate. And so it really looked like there was this glide path where there was going to be, you know, two uh, Democrats in this top two, you have three prominent Democrats, Garvey getting in there. And 
really by virtue of name ID alone. I mean, he's not running much of a campaign in the sense there's no advertisement. He makes very, very minimal campaign stops. But because he is such a known figure and has been in the state for decades, just by virtue of that and having an R behind his name, you have seen in the polls, there's this coalescing um, of the Republican vote. And so I think that now there is it's a real toss up. And I think all the polling has shown that, you know, uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, one of the Democrats, he's pretty much solidly maintained a, a a small but but substantial lead. And he's likely to get into that one that first stop spot. But that second spot, it's a real toss up of can another Democrat get in there or does Garvey monopolize all of the Republican vote? Remember, there's a Republican primary, presidential primary on the ballot. So Republicans have way more of a reason to turn out to vote for our March primary than Democrats do. And and I'm I am really curious kind of what what Steve Garvey is doing Kind of on it on a day by day basis. If you if you've got any insight to that, obviously he showed up to the debate, but like you said, there are no advertisements. Uh, I guess we'll find out how much money he raised within you know the next twenty four hours. But um, uh, you know, California is a huge state, and he's got that name ID advantage. But he also hasn't stepped on the diamond in close to forty years now. What is he up to, and, and kind of is he doing anything to? solidify his position beyond kind of being a, a well-known figure for the last couple decades? Steve Garvey is doing, Steve Garvey, the Senate candidate, is doing a lot of what Steve Garvey, the retired baseball player, had been doing. I mean, in the time that he had retired from baseball, he was still kind of very present on the scene in the sense that, you know, you would go to charity events and like Steve Garvey would be there or there'd be a Dodger Stadium and like Steve Garvey would be there. So he's always been around. And it doesn't feel like this Senate campaign is all that different. It's just now like Steve Garvey goes to the border as opposed to Steve Garvey goes to Dodger Stadium. But it's still kind of the same the same vibe in a sense. I mean, he does do a few media hits. I mean, he has had some profiles. But the truth is, is that this is not this does not look anything like what the Democrats are running in terms of their campaign. There's no major television advertising at all or even digital advertising that I've seen. You're not seeing him court interest groups like you've seen these Democrats kind of meet with every labor group in, in the state, for example. Um, and then in terms of like him being able to consolidate these Republicans, his strategy on the debate stage was interesting, right? Because he almost seemed to be looking at November, the general election, in that he was not, he did not want to fully embrace Trump. He would not commit to saying whether he would vote for Trump again in this presidential race or not, which makes sense in a California general election in a state where Trump is so unpopular. But if he was really looking at like, let's nail down these Republican voters, Trump is very popular with California Republicans. And so he's trying to sort of walk this this line and Maybe it looks a little bushy to hardcore Trump people, and so maybe they look elsewhere. Maybe the fact that he had three Democrats on stage beating up on him is just enough to sort of rile up that negative partisanship. And so that, by virtue of, of Adam Schiff not liking him, therefore Republicans will vote for him. And I think that that's the bet he's trying to make and what we're trying to see if that sort of congeals into a narrative over the next five weeks or so. As an aside, um the you mentioned Trump voters or Trump supporters and Republicans. You know there are more Trump voters in California than I think six of the smallest states in the country. But people, when they talk about civil war and they don't want California to be a part, they they miss that fact. Um, but I was wondering about Barbara Lee. Well, the fact that Adam Schiff is kind of the leading Democratic candidate, uh, but the Democratic electorate in general across the country seeming to be more favorable to women, um, women of color, and Barbara Lee in this case as the only main NorCal candidate in a state that was has been until recently dominated by candidates from Northern California. Does she really have, how much of a chance does she have of squeaking into, squeaking into the top two or is she just going to come up short? I think that if, yeah, if you look at her on paper and the attributes that she has a, as a candidate, it should be extremely strong, right? I mean, she has this vote against military authorization in the immediate, immediate aftermath of 9-11 that looked incredibly prescient now and sort of endeared her to the progressive base of the party. She is a black woman who has represented Oakland for, for decades now. I mean, so she is a known quantity in the Bay Area, which is where people vote, Um but I think that that what what that sort of paper listing of qualifications doesn't account for is that she was going up against two Democratic figures who became sort of national figures in their own right in the Trump era, right? I mean, for different reasons. But Schiff, with his 
the Trump impeachment, the January 6th committee. I mean, this is somebody who basically has a semi-permanent booking on MSNBC, can go on cable news whenever he wants, raises a ton of money from small donors that way. Um, And the same with Katie Porter for kind of the different reason, right? The whiteboard, the going after corporate interests. But she also has this like virality to her. And so in some ways, I almost feel like Barbara Lee is is an example of what an, an, an election maybe 10 or 15 years ago, she would have had so many of these advantages, but she gets drowned out by these quasi celebrities that she's running against. And her biggest problem is money. She just has not had the fundraising prowess that the other Democrats had. And so while she is pretty well known in the Bay Area and in the rest of the state, like here in Los Angeles, nobody knows who she is. I mean, so much of the debate she spent just introducing herself, doing this biography, trying to sort of explain through her own personal story how that sort of represents California's diversity. But it's, you know, again, five weeks before the election, ballots are dropping in six days um, because we have all mail ballots out here. So it's really, really late for her to try to be establishing herself as a presence when you have such huge personalities on stage with her. So much of the and Nathan alluded to this, but kind of the north south dynamic has played such a big role in California politics for, you know, time immemorial, it feels like. And 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 all of a sudden you've got these two, you know, it's very possible that we're looking at a situation where we're gonna have two Democrats from Southern California uh in in a general election. Um together. And then you've got the other senator, Alex Padilla, also from Southern California. Is this does does this suggest a larger realignment in kind of the fault lines of the state's politics, or is it more about kind of the specific circumstances of this one election that we're seeing perhaps that north-south uh, dichotomy not not play as big a role in, in the politics of the state? I think there is actually a larger shift going on, because if you look over in Sacramento and you look at the state capitol and where the, the leadership is, we actually have two legislative leaders right now who are not from the Bay Area or from LA. They're actually two, from two rural areas. Um, one's kind of near wine country, the other's in the Central Coast. Um, and before that, we had a Senate leader who was from San Diego, who is now running for governor, because yes, the 2026 race for governor has already started out here. Um, and so I do think that we are seeing just a, a kind of broadening of the geographic viability in the state of where candidates can come out of. I mean, San Francisco between Jerry Brown and Willie Brown and Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris. It was such a machine of churning out, you know, the Burtons, like these like historic Democratic Party figures. Um, and I think we're starting to see a bit of a break on that, on, on, on the Bay Area's hold on that. Now, does that like translate? Obviously, if there's two L.A. area senators, I mean, that's going to be massive after decades of Senator Feinstein and Senator Boxer, both from Northern California. So I think that that's going to be really significant. L.A., I always still think kind of punches below its weight, under its weight um, in terms of political heft, because considering how large it is as a population area, it still is not nearly as politically engaged as San Francisco is. um, And voter turnout is still abysmal compared to the Bay Area. But I do I think there is a realignment slowly but surely happening, and it, it makes things way more interesting to watch. So primary day is March 5th, right? Super yes. Tuesday. Uh, we've got about a month to go. What should we expect over this closing month from the candidates in this Senate race? Well, I think the biggest question that I have is, does anybody, particularly on the Democratic side, come in to give Steve Garvey a boost? Uh, because there are a lot of people who would love to see a Steve Garvey versus a Democrat race. Um, and I would say most of them are national Democrats outside of Washington, outside of California, um, who desperately do not want to see tens of millions of dollars that could be spent in swing seats elsewhere being spent on what is essentially a safe seat for, for Democrats. Um, and so I think that if you're a supporter of Adam Schiff, I, I don't think that anybody is like, I don't think that you know, Chuck Schumer or anybody will be as bold as to like directly intervene to try and, you know, lift Steve Garvey up over a Katie Porter. But you know that he wouldn't cry himself to sleep if that happened, because there's so much at stake in terms of the money that could be spent here that could otherwise go to some of these other key Senate races or these key House races down ballot, which I know we're going to talk about. Um, So that's the thing that I'm waiting for is, you know, does somebody all of a sudden start blanketing the ads with positive Steve Garvey ads or or ads that talk about how MAGA Steve Garvey is and try and tap into those Republican voters? Um, You know, Steve Garvey himself doesn't have much of a campaign apparatus, but um, there's a lot of money going around that might might come to his assistance. So um, that is that is the thing that I think that all of us political observers are are waiting for. And we know that the potential is there um, and just wait to see if somebody wants to pull the trigger. 
So before we before we jump into those gazillion house races, can you take us behind the scenes of the debate? And I mean, how how did the debate? Uh, what your expectations differ from maybe how it was? How did the candidates interact when the cameras were off? What what was that like? It was. I, I have a print reporter like like through and through. I've never done a televised debate like this before. So most of it, I was like in a fugue state, just like, is this a real thing that's that's happening? But the things that I actually <laughs> remember um, were that, that this was the first time that all four candidates were on stage, right? And so it was like the first chance you could actually sort of read the vibe um, in the room. There is um, not a lot of love lost between Adam Schiff and Katie Porter. I feel like there was like some like serious jabs, and I think that there is, you know, there's there's especially with Schiff's close alignment with former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and Pelosi and Porter have famously not gotten along. It's just like the vibes are off um, between them, and I think that if this if they end up getting to the top two, like it could get to be a pretty sharp elbowed race, which is not anything that Democratic voters in the state have any interest of, because what you hear from voters all the time is like, I like them all. Um, so I, I, I wonder how like mudslinging is going to get, but that was like notable. Garvey is just like, I mean, he was, he was kind of like animatronic Ronald Reagan on stage. And like, that was definitely <laughs> the vibe behind the scenes too. He's just like cool, calm and collected. You would have had no idea that this was a first time candidate who's never done this debate before, just in terms of his like presentation. He seems like very calm, very self-assured. Um, and I think that in terms of my expectations versus I, I was I was pretty pleased by how it turned out because we actually got to see these folks like go off script a bit and interact and have some of these more organic moments. It was stressful as a moderator to try and like get them to sort of follow the rules. And then there's a certain point where you're just like, they're going to blow right past me. Like, let's go see what this exchange will look like. Um, but it was nice because I actually think that it gave us a little bit more of a glimpse. And this race has been churning along for more than a year, but it hasn't really felt real. And it finally felt real when you saw all four of them on stage together, interacting with each other. Are there any other debates scheduled uh, before the primary, or was this the one? My understanding is that there's uh, at least two more, and I but I've only seen an announcement for one, which is on February 12th, um, which all four of them are also supposed to be on stage. Now, there's other candidates that are in this race. There's technically like two dozen. Um, and so I think one of the other things we'll see is if there is a debate that has, for example, Eric Early, who's another Republican candidate, who's kind of, you know, a perpetual candidate out here, who is has some popularity with the Republican grassroots. Like, if he gets on stage, does that seriously alter the dynamic at all? Um, but it looks like this next one is going to have the same sort of dynamics that ours had. Yeah. Well, it will be very fascinating to see how how the cards fall uh, in just over a month from now, um, especially given the amount of money that's already been spent and could be spent moving forward. But uh this is not the only blockbuster race in California, right? Uh, underneath underneath this Senate contest, we've got a whole host of really competitive house races, and uh, you know it. it um, it's it's incredibly clear for for those of us who kind of watch the national picture that the the path to the House majority for both parties, but especially you know Democrats trying to claw back control after losing it last time, runs pretty squarely through uh, California. You know they they lost seats um, in this state over the last two cycles, which is something that had not happened really for Democrats in California over the the previous two decades. I think uh, you know this this was a real uh, backsliding post twenty eighteen that we saw among California House members uh, in the Democratic Party. So there's a lot going on here. Uh, hopefully, we can uh, run through some of these competitive races with you. Uh, but first, let's take a look at some of the ads that are already flying ahead of the 2024 primary. Violent cartels are exploiting Biden and Mallorca's border crisis. Millions of illegal border crossings, flooding our streets with dangerous drugs and crime. But the liberals still want to defund the police. David Valadeo is fighting back. He's endorsed by law enforcement, supports strong and secure borders to protect our communities. Republican David Valadeo, a conservative fighting for us. I'm David Valadeo, and I approve this message. I am conservative Republican Chris Mathis, and I approved this message. I am Chris Mathis. I grew up in a small farming community where my parents taught me my love for God, family, and country. 
I am a conservative Republican. I firmly believe life starts at conception. Children should be allowed to pray in school. And family values come from our parents and not from the socialist deep state of government. I am conservative Republican Chris Mathis, and I stand strong with President Trump. America will never become a socialist country. This year's election is about who we can trust to deliver for Central Valley's working families and protect our privacy. On Defending Privacy, Rudy Salas and Democrats support making sure women have the right to make their own abortion health care decisions. On cutting costs, Rudy Salas and Democrats have taken on Big Pharma to lower the price of life-saving medicine like insulin. This year, the choice is clear. I'm Rudy Salas, and I approve this. So those were three congressional ads from the 22nd District, which is in California's Central Valley uh, and the Bakersfield area. It's currently represented by Republican Congressman David Valadeo. Uh, It is a seat that Biden would have carried in the 2020 presidential election. So it is a top priority for Democrats trying to take back the House majority. Uh, But it is a a bit of a, a... car wreck of a primary at the moment, and it's attracting a lot of money from outside groups. Melanie, what's going on here in in the Valadeo seat? um, and, And why is this upcoming primary so important for both parties? Well, Valadeo, he's fascinating because he's kind of this political figure that's had nine lives. He's this very moderate Republican and, in fact, has broken with his party in a lot of ways, particularly on immigration, because he represents this farm district with a lot of Latino farm workers in it. So he was never going to be a real hardliner on immigration. He actually had lost that seat in the 2018 wave, then won it back uh, in, in 2020. And then he voted for Trump's impeachment after January 6th. And so the big sort of line about him last cycle was, can he survive a challenge to his right? Trump never ended up endorsing one of his challengers. It was one of like the most interesting subplots of that whole sort of series of the impeachment 10. Um, And so this time around, one of these challenges from this right, this guy, Chris Matisse, who's now going by Chris Mathis, by the way, which is like a bizarre uh, kind of twist. My my colleague, Lara Corti at, at Playbook, reported it out. There's actually a state lawmaker whose last name is pronounced Mathis, and there's some like conspiracy theories that he's like piggybacking on this, his name pronunciation. Anyway, I just recommend like reading the playbook. It's There's there's some like very choice swear words being thrown about. It's a great one. Um, so he's still getting challenged by his right, right? At the same time, you have Rudy Salas, who has been sort of the DCCC's chosen candidate to go up against him, former state legislator from Bakersfield. Um, but there's another Democrat in the race, the state Senator Melissa Hurtado. And so Democrats are worried about getting locked out of the top two. Republicans are worried that a super hard right Republican could oust this moderate Republican who has a history of winning in a Biden seat. So both parties have a lot of anxiety. And so that's why you're seeing Bakersfield, this media market that's not particularly expensive, not super hot, getting all this money being thrown into it because I don't think either party feels super secure about their position going into this primary. Uh, one of the things that has been kind of fascinating to me is is that it it's it really does seem like Rudy Salas needs help, right? I mean, he clearly the Democrats have brought the cavalry in. The state party, I think, is spending. You know, the the uh, the the C is spending. And, and this is a guy who, after a, a career in the state legislature, was the nominee for this seat just just a year ago, um, and has outraised Melissa Hurtado significantly. I mean, she's pulled in very little campaign cash, um, and yet it's kind of an all hands on deck situation in order just to get him through the primary. What is going on there? Does that say something about Rudy? Does it say something about Hurtado, or is it is it more about? Mathis slash Matisse and and Valadeo uh, and and their effect uh, on on the race that that is causing this kind of rush of of cavalry for for Rudy Salas. I think it's all of the above. I think if you ask the DCCC, they'll say that this is kind of just an insurance policy. I mean, Melissa Hurtado entered the race and hasn't really done very much since. She's not doing fundraising. She hasn't really been holding events, but she is on the ballot and she is a woman Democrat on the ballot. Um, who is Latina. I mean, she would be somebody who would be a good, you know, fit a profile of that district quite well. So even just by virtue of her being on the ballot, I think that that gives Democrats a little bit of heartburn. And so you saw the D-trip, which tends not to get involved in primaries where there's more than two Democrats, um, at least out here in California, they've been taking a pass. They were like, Salas is our guy. We recruited Salas last cycle. We're going to get all in. 
behind him. I think the fact that there is this presidential primary is the real sort of X factor in terms of what they're expecting for turnout. I mean, that that turnout tends to just be more conservative anyway in the primaries. But if it's all Republicans who really have a reason to vote, there's very much a situation where Valadeo could get enough to, votes to get in and Matisse slash Mathis could also get enough to get in. And that would be just a huge humiliating factor. Um, having her Tato on the ballot really has screwed Democrats over because if she were not there, I think that they would be doing having a little bit more fun trying to elevate Matisse and maybe even seeing if they could knock Valadeo out in the primary. They can't do that now because they have to play defense because they have to make sure that their preferred Democrat gets into the into the seat. And we, I don't think we even mentioned that Valadeo almost didn't make the top two in the, in the 2022 election. So there's a lot of fear going on. And when, um, and there's concern probably on the Republican side, not because of Valadeo's track record of winning, but if you are listening to this and not watching this on YouTube, uh, you should check out the Mathis ad. The, the production quality is just not anywhere near what we would call sort of a normal congressional campaign. I mean, it, it is, uh, it's, it's a little rough around the edges on the, from an editing and production perspective. So if he, if Valadeo doesn't get in and Mathis, then it would take a lot of outside money. Republicans would have to prop up him in in the campaign and, and this we have this race rated as tilt republican uh, but depending on the outcome of this primary that rating you know that rating could go a lot of different directions i will just also add that this is one of those races where kevin mccarthy not being speaker really matters kevin mccarthy represented the neighboring district close friends with Valadeo and really sort of saw it has his own personal responsibility to make sure that the Republicans kept that seat. He convinced Trump not to endorse one, either Mathis or another one of uh, Valadeo's top, like hard right challengers last cycle so that there wouldn't be sort of a hard right, hard right coalescing to knock Valadeo out. Now McCarthy is gone. You don't have that fundraising prowess. You just don't have that sort of muscle in the valley like you used to. And it could be a serious ripple effect in this swing seat. So there's also uh, another Central Valley seat that we're paying cl close attention to, the 13th District Republican Congressman John Duarte facing a rematch against uh, former State Assemblyman Adam Gray, who was the, the nominee last time, one of the closest, I think the second closest House race in the country uh, last time, closest one in California. But those two are, are headed to the general election. They were the only two candidates to file there. I, I want to take a look at uh, some Southern California races. We'll start with the one that I think is probably the messiest primary of, of the entire uh, state in a lot of ways. The uh, race to succeed Katie Porter um, in coastal Orange County and Irvine. Uh, you've got Republican Scott Baugh, the repeat uh, challenger, lost to Porter narrowly last time, but the Democratic side much less settled what's going on here uh, with, with, with Dave Min and, and Joanna Weiss? It's a mess, as you said. So Dave Min sort of seemed like he was sort of the chosen successor. Katie Porter endorsed him. They actually had a very nasty primary in 2018, but have since come together. Um, he's a state senator, former UC Irvine professor, which is the Katie Porter connection. Um, but then last spring, Dave Min got a DUI in Sacramento after a night of receptions with lobbyists. Um, and while he has been kind of on this apology tour since, I think that that then gave a lot of... Um, of attention over to Joanna Weiss, who was a lesser known candidate. She's never run for office before, but she is a political activist. She formed a sort of women's political action group in Orange County. She was, and that group sort of was sort of symbolic of the uh, 2018 wave that we saw in Orange County for Democrats. A lot of these suburban women in these, you know, um, uh, kind of purplish areas in Orange County really getting galvanized. And she was sort of right at the heart of that. So she gets into the race and it's just been sort of a slugfest between these two Democrats. Uh, we just saw Emily's list, which has really gone all in on Weiss. I think that she's really their top candidate in the country this year. They've just announced a million dollar ad buy that they're going to be trying to elevate. Um, right now, it's just all positive ads sort of introducing Weiss to the, um, to the voters. But there's that possibility that it could turn negative, that they start using the DUI against men. I mean, it's really become boiled down this question of like, who is most electable? Who are the Democrats? Which is the Democrat that's most likely to retain the seat that, you know, Katie Porter, for all of her political talents, had a really hard time holding on to. This is just not a slam dunk for, for Democrats holding on to at all. So you're seeing these competing theories of electability Meanwhile, Scott Baugh is just as ecstatic, right? Because he can watch them blood each other up. He does have a, a challenger on the right 
um, Max Ukropina. So there is kind of a, a sort of MAGA contingent. But for the most part, Republicans seem to have consolidated around Baugh. His fundraising has been very strong. And he can sort of like sit back and watch these two Dems sort of wail on each other um, and wait to see who he who he's who he goes up against in the fall. Um, but I think that there's there's a lot of angst in in Democratic circles about this seat because you know you had somebody like Porter and when you lose a political talent like that in that seat, um, I should say Min has a lot of sort of other establishment support. I mean, he has the state party endorsement. He's got a ton of labor unions. He's actually got the police unions, which is what he uses to offset the DUI thing. It's like, but the cops still like me. Um, so you know, maybe he'll have enough of that sort of institutional Democratic support, plus the name ID of being a state senator, um, that could be enough to get him over. He also, as a as a uh, Korean American man, sort of also represents this changing face of Orange County, right? The fact that this is a district that has such a large Asian American population, there is, I think, a, another conversation going on, which is like, is this an AAPI seat? Is this a seat where you should see the ascendance? And of course, um, you know, right next door, you have Michelle Steele, um, a Republican who sort of represents the Republican gains in the Asian American community in Orange County. So there's just, it's a whole lot of swirl, I guess, that that's bundled up in this one race that kind of like is a bunch of threads of California politics all combining into one. And it'll be, it'll be interesting to, whether it's the 47th district here, or we'll talk, I think about the 45th district and steel in a second, but what does Orange County do at the presidential level, right? It, it was Orange County generationally Republican, clearly didn't like Trump, went, went against Trump. Uh, but now is there a, is there a shift, right? Does Biden in his actions in office, does that remind some, um, historically Republican voters about why they never voted for Democrats until until recently? Or does it continue down the path that it is and, and with Trump on the ballot? And, and the, so I'm interested to see what happens. Biden won uh, the uh, this 47th district um, pretty handily. But does that happen? Does that happen again? Well, or do voters split, right? I mean, these like mythical split ticket voters, like that's actually become a real thing in Orange County. I mean, we saw in 2020, as Biden was doing so well in these districts, Republicans were also gaining in those districts. And so clearly there are voters who do not like Trump at all, but have not necessarily like spilled that over to the Republican Party writ large. And so um, I think that that is that that is to me the, the real question of if, if Democrats can peel away um, peel back some of these voters on the House side, even if they feel more comfortable about where they'll end up when it comes to the presidential. I want to touch briefly on another OC seat, the Michelle Steele seat that Nathan mentioned, the 45th district, another primary here that has been fairly unsettled. There was kind of a, you know, what, what looked like an initial front runner and then uh, she wasn't able to raise a lot of money. A new guy shows up and starts raising a lot of money, Derek Tran. Um, but but I know you know Kim I guess Kim Win Penaloza now uh, is is still has support from a lot of the party uh, you know local party figures party establishment um, wh what's going on in this district and and has has the the uh, you know the, the democratic the unsettled nature of the democratic primary perhaps made this one a lower priority than than the partisanship of the seat might suggest. I think for now, I think that like the DCCC and National Democrats are just sort of, I think that they, they, they like both, both of these candidates have like strong enough profiles that I think that they could see them going forward and, and being decent candidates. I think that the thing that caused a lot about angst about Kim Wynn is that she's, her fundraising has just been horrible. Um, she actually, I mean, she is, she's, um, half Vietnamese, half Latina, like, I mean, truly like the, the perfect sort of demographic combination for this district. She's, um, you know, a local city elected. She has this incredibly compelling um, biography. She just gave birth like two weeks ago. She just gave birth. Oh, it's an incredible, <laughs> incredible biographical story. And I also think, especially as we see that Democrats really are prepared to go after Michelle Steele on abortion. Um, they've made a, a lot of hay about the fact that Steele has signed up again to um, co-sponsor what effectively is a national abortion ban. I mean, somebody like a Kim Wynn, you would think would be like a really strong messenger for that. But I think that there's a sense of like, if she can't put the money together, um, then they see this guy, Derek Tran, who entered the race very late, um, but came in already with some pretty strong fundraising and think, okay, well, you know, he has, um, you know, he's an army veteran. He's, you know, uh, also sort of speaks to the Asian American population in this district. Like maybe this guy will be fine. So you're not seeing the mudslinging like you're seeing next door in California 47. It's not as nasty because there's not like DUIs and arrests and all that. But there's still, I think, this sense of between the, these Democrats, some sharp elbows going. And meanwhile, national Dems are kind of like, voters, figure out who you want. 
get back to us. We'll go all in to try and take out Michelle Steele once we know who that is. In addition to those races, we are also watching several other competitive contests in California. In the 27th district, which is uh, Los Angeles County, Republican Congressman Mike Garcia is going to face former Virgin Galactic CEO and former NASA chief of staff George Whitesides in a toss-up race. Uh, Ken Calvert, Republican in the 41st district, is also facing a competitive race. It's a rematch against former federal prosecutor Will Rollins. Democrats are very excited about that race, hoping to put it on the map. Uh, up north in California, in Northern California, uh, freshman Congressman Kevin Kiley, a Republican, faces a challenge from Jessica Morse. Uh, she ran for office in 2018 in a, a more Republican version of this district, fell short, but is hoping to improve on her performance this cycle. Uh, in the 40th district, moving back down to Orange County, Republican Congresswoman Young Kim has really established herself as one of the strongest Republicans in a Biden-held district. Uh, she is not a priority for Democrats this cycle. Uh, there is a primary in that district, Orange County Fire Captain Joe Kerr uh, versus uh, Tustin Unified School District board member Allison Munez Damacolis. Uh, either one of them will be an underdog against Kim uh, in this district, which we have rated likely Republican. And finally, uh, the 49th district, which is a coastal southern Orange County and a little bit of San Diego. Uh, Mike Levin, Democrat, is uh, on the very edge of the target list for Republicans, really a bubble seat for them. Republicans like their candidate, Margarita Wilkinson, uh, but she does face other Republicans in that primary uh, 2022 state Senate nominee, Matt Gunderson, most notably. I think there was a poll out relatively recently that showed Gunderson a few points ahead of Wilkinson. We'll see if Wilkinson, who's self-funding, can change that in the final month of the race. And Jacob, there's also a handful of other Democratic open seats uh, that, uh, that are important. Where, what are those? Yeah. So uh, partially because there are three Democratic members running for Senate and partially because of some retirements, there are a bunch of open Democratic primary seats. Uh, we'll start in uh, Oakland, where Barbara Lee, who's running for Senate, is leaving her seat. Uh, the prohibitive front runner there is uh, Latifah Simon. She's a board member of the Bay Area Rapid Transit Board. Uh, she does face some competition, but uh, has the the vast majority of support from uh, party establishment figures and is a, a good fundraiser. In the 16th District, Congresswoman Anna Eshoo is retiring. Uh, that is a massive primary there. Uh, the top two candidates are probably Sam Licardo, who's the former San Jose mayor, and Santa Clara Supervisor Joe Simidian. Uh, but State Assemblyman Evan Lau, Palo Alto City Councilwoman Julia Lithcott-Hames, and Marine veteran Peter Dixon, uh, who is a self-funder already up on TV, uh, are all in that race as well. Um, in the 29th District, which is the Eastern San Fernando Valley, uh, Representative Tony Cardenas is not seeking re-election. This one is probably the, the clearest field of them all. Uh, State Assemblywoman Luz Rivas is going to be the next congresswoman from this district. She has consolidated support very quickly uh, following Cardenas's announcement. Uh, she does face fellow Democrat Angelica Duenas, who has run and lost uh, this seat several times against Cardenas in the last couple of years. In the 30th district, we're almost there. Uh, <laughs> congressman Adam Schiff, of course, running for Senate. Big primary there uh, to replace him. Former Los Angeles City Attorney Mike Feuer, State Senator Anthony Portentino, State Representative Laura Friedman, School Board Member Nick Melvoin, who uh, Melanie mentioned a little earlier, and actor uh, and former star of Boy Meets World, uh, Ben Savage, all in that race. Solid Democratic, of course, in the uh, Burbank and Glendale area. And then the 31st District, Eastern San Gabriel Valley, uh, Congresswoman Grace Napolitano is uh, retiring at the end of this term. A bunch of candidates running to replace her, most notably former Congressman Gil Cisneros, who represented a different uh, part of the state in Orange County uh, last cycle, uh, not last cycle, last uh, last decade, really, from 2018 to 2020. Uh, he is in the mix there. State Senator Susan Rubio, the other major candidate, uh, though State Senator Bob Archuleta, former Monrovia mayor, Marianne Lutz, 
and self-funding attorney Greg Hafif are all in the mix as well. There's also, in addition to those Democratic primaries and open seats, a Republican open seat primary that's brewing and will actually come up well before November, and that's the special election to replace former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who resigned his seat at the end of last year. Um, This is also a a Central Valley kind of Bakersfield seat. Uh, Melanie, what's going on here? Because it hasn't been the cleanest primary so far either uh, in this special election to succeed McCarthy. The way that I described it, particularly as all unfolding, is like this is such a perfect microcosm of like Kevin McCarthy's year that it's just like starts out with such promise and then like is a big old mess. Um, and so when he announced that not only was he going to be retiring, but that he was going to be resigning, that set off this sort of scramble of who was going to be to run in his place. And essentially what happened is that there were two very prominent state law, uh, lawmakers who both seemed like strong candidates. And there was a little bit of like waiting, one waiting on the other. Vince Fong, who was McCarthy's former, former district director, he's a state assembly member, says, I pass. I'm not going to do it, deferring to state senator Shannon Grove. And then Shannon Grove surprises everybody. and is like, actually, I'm not going to run. Problem is, is that she said this after the filing deadline where uh, Fong had already filed to run for re-election as an assembly member. So then we have this kind of like unprecedented panic where Fong goes, psych, I'm actually running for Congress anyway, um, files to run for Congress. There's actually a whole lawsuit about this of if he can be on the ballot twice for two different jobs. Right now, the, the, he's able to do so. The court is allowing him to do so, but I think stay tuned on that. And so what you have is Fong, who's kind of representation of the McCarthy machine, right? I mean, the kind of a continuation of McCarthy's um, dominance. He's got he's got money. He's got some name ID. Um, but, you know, this is a district that is in some ways kind of to the right of McCarthy and sort of represents the troubles that McCarthy saw in his own conference in D.C. Um, and so we are seeing some other challengers to the right, um, including kind of a perpetual MAGA guy named David Giglio, um, this uh, Tulare County Sheriff, Mike Boudreau, who sort of seems to be trying to split the difference. He's MAGA, but not fat MAGA. There's a self-funder who's a casino magnet from Fresno. It's basically like everybody in the pool. And it's exactly what I think McCarthy did not want to happen because remember McCarthy got elected to Congress by basically being the designated heir to his mentor, Bill Thomas. And that was such a smooth sort of transition. This has been anything but smooth. It's going to be a Republican, almost certainly. There are some Democrats, but like this is a red seat. But this is not like a well-oiled machine that has been operating. And I think that is, again, kind of representative of the year that McCarthy has just had. What happens if Fong is, I mean, uh, what, what, the if, if the court ultimately decides that Fong isn't eligible to to stand for election in this primary, I mean, do they have to make that decision before the March 19 primary? Is he all, or the, before the March 5 primary? I mean, if, if, if they decide after and he wins, do, do they run the election? I mean, how, how does this all play out? I mean, I'm making like the shrug emoji because <laughs> I feel like that's where we are right now. The st- secretary, basically the, the the judge who ruled, who said that, that Fong could proceed, and basically is now on the ballot twice. And she wrote in her opinion, I recognize that this is a mess, but this is for very complicated reasons what we have to do because of the law. The legislature needs to pass a, a, a law to sort of really kind of clarify some of the stuff. Sure enough, we have seen some of those bills then be, be introduced. But while the secretary of state has appealed this ruling, it's everything's moving at a very lackadaisical pace. There has not been an appeal scheduled or, or heard yet. So I don't know. I mean, it, it is it was really interesting talking to all of these legal experts as we were moving up to this case and how many people being like, haven't seen this before. Or I guess, you know, technically there was a state lawmaker who also served in Congress in the 19th century. So huh. I guess I guess in some ways, Vince Fong, maybe he could do both jobs. It's... <laughs> It was a dream. Two dream jobs. Is he also? He's also going to be on the ballot for a state assembly seat. Yeah. Is that right? Wow. Huh. Yes. (laughs) It it is. um, I I feel like I the the word that keeps coming to mind is one that I don't think is fit for a family program. So I'm not going to say it, but needless to say, (laughs) thank you. Very Keystone Cops esque of how this is all played out. All right. Wow. That'll be that'll be one to watch. And finally, our Look What I Found segment. Uh, This is something we found recently. It could be politics. It could be sports, movies. It doesn't really matter. It could be anything. Jacob, what did you find? 
So as I said earlier, I was up in New York's third congressional district for a couple of days. Uh, now I, uh, when I found out that I was going there, I knew that there was a restaurant that I absolutely had to go to. Uh, my girlfriend and I are big fans of Kitchen Nightmares and the new season. Uh, Gordon Ramsay goes to an Indian restaurant called Dewan's uh, in Port Washington, which is on the North Shore of Long Island and turns the restaurant around. It's supposedly the food is now actually quite good. And so I said, you know, I, I got to go try it. So uh, Monday night, I drove out to Dewan's. A, I don't often get starstruck, but the maitre d' who was on the show and came across so well, oftentimes people don't do well on the show, but he really, uh, he was just such a kind, uh, kind and earnest gentleman. Um, seeing him was just so exciting. The food was delicious. Uh, so I, I didn't discover it, obviously, because it was on a network TV show, but uh, Dewan's in Port Washington, it was just a, a real treat to, to get to go there and enjoy some food. So it met or even exceeded expectations. It sounds like, yeah, no, it, it it was a great time. It was it was a lot of food. It was it was tasty, um, and they were all very nice. and the And the restaurant's beautiful. They really Gordon's guys did a good job uh, cleaning it up and 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 uh, making it uh, a really nice experience. Nice, uh, Mel. What did you find? So I um, am kind of a garbage person, and the thing that I do to unwind is watch reality television, um, which I'm thrilled to just admit to you all. Um, but I found what I think is just like perfect reality TV, like brain, brain floss, which is the show called The Traitors. It's on Peacock. It is, which is streaming. It's basically, it has a bunch of reality shows from your uh, stars, from your favorite shows, but they're playing essentially like, you know, like the party game mafia where you're trying to figure out like who's in the mafia and like, there's, yeah, there's yeah. Some, so they're playing that in a Scottish castle. It is being, the host is Alan Cummings in like his full Scottish, like fabulousness. And they have to try and figure out there are three people who are traitors who are slowly killing one by one, killing the other, the faithful. And they have to try and figure out who the traitors are. And it is so compelling. I would argue kind of has to do with politics because it's all about how people are like trying to like read the room and uh, like kind of like suss each other out. There's actually like a politician on the show, a British politician who was like the speaker of the house of commons you know like the guy who like would like yell and be super british um like so like the whole thing is just a delight and i really would like all of the all of your esteemed listeners who have such like highbrow tastes to like really come down to the garbage with me and watch the traders because it's like the most enjoyable hour of television every week now streaming on peacock cannot recommend it enough I thought the plot twist was going to be, they're also trying to figure out who went to Harvard Westlake. Like, that was, uh, <laughs> like who in this room slowly, we're going to, we're going to weed out these alums. <laughs> um, and on a very different, this will show you how highbrow uh, my tastes are. Um, I found I've been targeted with my Facebook ads with this uh, black jogger hoodie suit sweatsuit combo that is also snake eyes could also be sort of a costume for snake eyes from gi joe and i was like huh instead of just dismissing it out of hand, <laughs> my nostalgia gene is so strong i'm like maybe could i see myself wearing this snake eyes jogger suit out on h street in dc so i don't know this is this is why people come to this for fashion advice or Did maybe i'm seeking it? fashion advice i have not purchased it it is it is pricey but I, I guess there's probably a limited run on how many they're producing of this because of limited demand. Where, where, where were you served this ad? Was this just like an algorithmic, like, yeah, yeah. On, 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 on Facebook. Cause I'm old. So I guess I'm still, <laughs> I'm still on, uh, so, uh, on Facebook. And so it, it's got me, it, it, it has me figured out that uh, that at least has appeal to me. <laughs> but, I think if you've now like discussed this publicly, I think that now by like the laws of, of shopping and fashion, it means you do have to purchase it. Or like, I mean, I, mean I might need a crowdsource. I might need to crowdsource the, <laughs> crowdsource <laughs> the, the tune, in, tune into the next, next episode of inside elections on YouTube. And, and you'll see uh, Nathan in his full GI Joe uh, guys. <laughs> regalia. <laughs> That's great. Well, anyway, Mel, thank you for thank you for joining us and participating in all aspects of uh, of this episode. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. And that is all the time we have. Uh, we took a deep dive, a, a deep dive <laughs> into the March five California primaries, including the Senate race and a ton of House races. Thank you for joining us at Inside Elections. We provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional presidential, 
and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down the key races and bring valuable context to complex elections. Go to InsideElections.com to subscribe to the bi-weekly newsletter. We've got individual subscriptions and group packages that are tailored for association and corporate PACs. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and rate us on your favorite platform. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the thumbs up button, leave a comment, and subscribe. If you don't like today's episode, please email Ben Savage. We also want to thank our producers, Alan Tusinski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts and associate producer Conrad Tolosa. Please come back and join us next time.